There was nothing more painful as a child than trying to fall asleep on Christmas night. Any, uh, Christmas Eve specifically. Any, anyone else? Yeah? Um, nothing worse. I mean, trying to fall asleep the night before Christmas. You see, Christmas mornings were in the family I grew up with. I know this isn't always the case, but Christmas mornings where I grew up were magical. Um, the presents, of course, were so exciting, but um, my family was a big family. It was one of the few times we really kind of all came together. We were all in the room together, which we barely fit, and uh, gathered together, taking turns, laughing, and, and enjoying each other. I mean, it really was magical. So, so much joy on Christmas mornings growing up, which made the night before this overwhelming, tense, difficult night of sleep. I remember lying in bed just waiting and wishing I could fall asleep because the sooner I fell asleep, the quicker Christmas morning would come. Oh, morning, why won't you get here? It reminds me of a psalm that I've uh, read this week in preparation for the sermon, and, and really what the passage we're going to focus on today is Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, I wasn't crying the night before Christmas, but you get the idea. Joy certainly came in the morning. Today, we're starting a new series, and we're going to look at the four traditional themes of Advent. Hope, uh, faith, joy, and peace. And today we're going to start with hope. And I think this verse, Psalm 30, can really help us provide this good definition of hope. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. We're, we're going to talk about joy in a couple weeks. It's one of the themes of Advent traditionally. And uh, joy comes when, with the sun, you know, a new day, a light casting out darkness. But before joy comes, we have to survive the night. And that might be difficult. Because the night represents those difficult seasons in our lives. Uh, uh, those seasons where you're just not sure you're going to make it through. Those times that are really hard to live through. But this is how we can understand hope. Joy comes in the morning. We'll get to that. But hope is what sustains us through the night. Hope is the belief that no matter how dark it becomes, the sun will rise again. Joy comes in the morning, but hope carries us through the night while we're anxious and waiting for that sun to rise again. For some, this uh, verse from Psalm 30 might sound familiar, if only because of the popular uh, bridge from the oversung song, I'm Trading My Sorrows. Uh, I sang it for everyone in the space uh, this morning already. I, I might not do it again if you know it. Even by mentioning it, it might be stuck in your head all day. I am trading my sorrows. I am trading my pain. Uh, when I worked at a camp, back at camp, uh, we played that song we needed to trade that song in is what we needed to do and, and the sorrows that were attached to it. But we played that song so much. If you don't know the song and, and you don't get it, you're, just consider yourself blessed. But um, uh, there's a line in there from Psalm 30 that says, Though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes in the morning. Well, this might be what I think of when I see this verse out of Psalm 30. It's not its biggest claim to fame. Uh, hard to believe, I know, but it's not. The entire chapter of Psalm 30, not just this verse, is well known in some uh, circles for a different reason. Psalm 30 has become uh, essential to the celebration of the Jewish uh, festival of Hanukkah. The book of Psalms is a collection of hymns, and just like our 
uh, hymns and carols and praise songs today, certain songs end up getting sung at certain times in the year. And for the Hebrew people, this psalm is read every morning service during the eight days of Hanukkah. And in some places, it'll be read at every evening service too. So Psalm 30 is the psalm of Hanukkah. And for good reason, because Hanukkah, like Psalm 30, helps us understand hope. So I want to take a second. We'll leave Psalm 35, uh, uh, verse 5, behind here, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll get back to it in a second. But I want to share a little bit about the festival of Hanukkah. It, it comes from two different places. It can be found in the book of Maccabees and in the Jewish Talmud. Uh, they tell the same story, but in different ways. The book of Maccabees is a book that can be found in the Hebrew Bible, as well as some Christian Bibles. It tells the story of Judaism um, about the time of the prophets before the time of Jesus. So before Christmas, but after the prophets, in what we call the intertestamental period. Uh, until the Reformation, or for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, this book and a few others were included as part of the Bible and what we call the canon. Uh, when the Reformation happened, the Protestant leaders protested a lot of things. That's what Protestant means, including these books. Uh, they cut them out, partly because they were written in Hebrew, and they kept a lot of the other Old Testament ones that are in our Bible. But in Catholicism and Orthodox churches, those books are still considered part of the canon, or at least authoritative. In this book, uh, in one of these books, is the book of Maccabees, uh, 1 and 2. We read the story in Maccabees of a revolt against the, one of the Greek empires, the Seleucid Empire. And at the time, the Seleucid Empire was controlling Israel, and Israel wanted to be free, free to, you know, live and worship as God had called them. It's a common story in the Old Testament. Israel and Judah, you know, did pretty good when their military arrangements were local and tribal. But as soon as world powers showed up with Greek, uh, the Romans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all these world powers, oftentimes the world powers would just take over Israel and Israel would live um, paying tribute or taxes. And uh, this is the case when Jesus comes onto the scene. The Christmas story is embedded in a story where Israel and Jerusalem is under Roman rule. So here in the story of Maccabees, it tells the story of how the people rose up against the empire this time and pushed the foreign powers uh, uh, out of their country and, and got their country back and got their, the city of Jerusalem back. It's one of the few times in the history that they used, uh, that they were able to push foreign powers back with force, and it's, it's not so common in the Old Testament. But with their new freedom, the first thing they do is they go to the temple, which, which had been, um, become unclean, uh, tainted, impure. And they put the temple back the way that it should be, beginning so they can begin temple worship again, and which includes these candles and incense and an altar with sacrifices and basins of water and all of these things that are laid out in specific order and in specific instructions in the book of, of Exodus. Um, and, and they put it in the right way because all of it had been disheveled and made unclean. When they get the temple back up and running, they then throw this party for eight days to celebrate, and they charge the people of Israel to celebrate every year for eight days, hence the eight days of Hanukkah. That's how it's explained in Maccabees 1. The Jewish Talmud uh, adds to the story. The Talmud is written, is kind of a collection of oral traditions and interpretations. You can think of it as a collection of commentaries and stories that didn't get included in the canon of Scripture. But it was very authoritative. It represented the tradition of the elders, so to speak. It, it represented wisdom of those who had gone before them. In the Talmud, they add a few details to the story of Hanukkah. They zoom into the story of the temple and how the temple was being restored. When the priests restore the temple, they run into this problem. 
See, in the temple, there is a candlestick that was commissioned by God in the building of the temple all the way back to Exodus, uh, which was a part, an essential part of temple worship. It, it ran on olive oil, and it, and it says in Exodus that it was meant to run regularly. It should be lit while the temple is engaged in worship. But you have to understand that the uh, empire was in town. They, they used the olive oil for other things, and, and that's the problem when you have foreigners in your land. But even the oil they didn't use up, they had, they had opened or contaminated. It was touched by, and handled and whatnot by Gentiles. So it was considered unclean or impure, and it couldn't be used for temple worship. When all was said and done, they ended up finding one barrel of oil with this priest's stamp still on it that could be used, one barrel, and that would be good enough for one day. So they would have to make more. But they had another problem. All the people who made the olive oil were also unclean. They had just engaged in war. They fought. They had been around dead bodies. And according to the book of Numbers and Old Testament law, if you were around uh, uh, death, you, had, you were unclean and had to wait seven days. So this might seem strange, but this was all part of the way in which temple worship worked according to our Bible, the Old Testament law. And so they would have to, the people, in order to be clean, they'd have to wait seven days. And they couldn't make new olive oil that would be clean unless they were themselves clean. And so there wasn't going to be any new olive oil for seven, probably eight days for the time that it would actually take the olive oil. And all they had left was enough oil for one day. So here's how the story goes. They light the candle anyways. They light it knowing it will go out, and they're going to have to wait seven days. After all that they'd been through, they'd finally taken the city back from these foreign powers. They'd finally put the temple back in order. They were finally in their place where they could worship, and they're going to have to wait another seven days because they didn't have enough oil for their candles, for their lamps. So they lit it, though, anyways, the little that they had, and it kept burning. And after a day, it's still burning. And after two days, it's still burning. And seven days, it's still burning. On the eighth day, they make new oil before the oil runs out. This is the miracle of Hanukkah, as told by the Talmud. They had enough oil to keep the light going for one day, and God made it last for eight days. So this year, from December 10th to December 18th, and it's different every year because they follow the lunar calendar, uh, December 10th to the 18th, Jews all over the world will celebrate this miracle. And it got me thinking. Because this miracle, while might is foreign to us, we often don't we don't think of these stories in Maccabees as part of uh, our our Protestant tradition. Um, it's still not an uncommon miracle, is it? There are these examples that God can take something small and make it last. That God can take what should only last one day and make it last eight. I can think of two examples just off the top of my head. The first one is in Second Kings four. You, you it, there you can read a story about how God took a jar of oil, all that a widow had and miraculously turned it into dozens of jars. In this story, a mother of two young boys um, lost her husband and had creditors coming to collect on, on her late husband's debt. And since she didn't have any money or any other way to make money or to sell, all she had was this one, one jar of oil, uh, the creditor would take her sons as payment, forcing them to be indentured servants. Now, this type of indentured servitude is common still today in, in many places around the world. Well, at risk of losing her sons and then becoming indentured servants, uh, the prophet Elisha tells her to go and collect jars from her neighbors. And not just a few jars, he tells her. And I love that line. Not just a few jars in 2 Kings 4. She does. She gathers as many jars as she can. And then the prophet tells her to take the small oil that she has and start pouring it out into the empty ones. And she pours it into one. You know where this story is going. And it fills the jar. 
And then it fills another. And then when she's filled that one, she starts pouring into another. And it fills it until all of the jars are filled. She fills enough jars to sell them and then eventually pay off her husband's debt, saving her kids. God takes something that shouldn't last and makes it last. I think of another story in the New Testament. In the Gospels, we can read a story of how Jesus took a few loaves of bread and fish and spread it out thousands of people, spread it to thousands of people. Jesus had gone away to major city, uh, gone away from major cities in an attempt to get away from crowds, and the crowds followed him to the middle of nowhere where there was no kitchens or resources or food, and so they get hungry, and the disciples insist that they send them away to get food, but Jesus wanting to, to teach them and provide for them and show the disciples how to provide them, he, he takes what they have. A few loaves and a few fishes. Many of you know the story. And he takes a piece and he starts passing it around. And one neighbor gets a piece and passes a little bit to the next. And they pass it to a next neighbor and, and again and again. And even though they keep passing it out, it never runs out until thousands have had their fill. God takes what shouldn't last and makes it go as far as it needs to. The oil from the candles, the empty jars, the bread and the fish, all the kind of the same miracle. God takes what clearly is too little, and God multiplies it. This kind of miracle is the ticket to understanding hope. You see, the opposite of hope is despair. And the fuel of despair is the fear that we won't have enough, or worse, the fear that I'm not enough. The fear that you don't have what it takes, the fear that you won't survive, whatever it is you're experiencing. Despair is the fear that morning is just never going to come. It'll always be nighttime. Despair is the fear that, that, that things are just never going to work out, that you'll, you'll run out of whatever it is that you need. I need this thing, and it's going to run out, and I'm going to be lost, and I don't. Despair tells us that the oil we have currently and the bread and the fishes that always left, and, and the, that's all we've got, and no one's going to bring any more, and no one's coming to help. That's what despair says. The candle's going to go out, the jar's going to run empty, and the basket will be gone before anyone gets their fill. And that's just how it happens. That's just life. That's despair. Hope, on the other hand, is the persistent and stubborn belief that even when you don't have very much left, God will find a way. The persistent and stubborn belief that no matter what you have left, God will find a way. Hanukkah is a, a great festival because it's one of the few times the people of Israel pushed back foreign powers and won. Most of their history, they wrestled with the empires of this world and lost. One of those times, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. I mean, leveled temple destroyed, homes destroyed, lives destroyed. It's like 2020 on steroids. Gardens, farms destroyed, and the people are distraught. Of course they are. Their homes are gone. Night has come, and there's no reason to believe that sun will ever rise on Jerusalem again. How could it? Complete despair. And so in the tradition of our faith and the Jewish faith, they write their feelings down into a beautiful poem that made it into Scripture. It's the Book of Lamentations. To lament means to complain or weep or grieve or cry out for justice. And they're grieving the loss of their homes and their city and their temple and their way of life. And yet throughout this poem, you get these glimpses of hope. In fact, the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, 
comes from Lamentations of all places. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 says, His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you know that song, you can probably sing it in your head already. Every morning they are new. In other words, the sun even now will rise. The morning will come again. Even in the midst of a city in ruins, we can believe that joy will come in the morning that our story isn't over, and that, that the future hasn't been written yet. Here's the thing. Hope is the persistent and stubborn belief that God will find a way, but hope is also the persistent and stubborn belief that the future doesn't have to look like your present. In fact, if you jump back two verses, you can see Lamentations' definition of hope. Lamentations 3, verse 20 to 21. It says, My soul is downcast within me, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The writer says, I am living in this darkness. My soul is broken and I'm hurting and nothing makes sense and everything's falling apart. But when I think of this, there's a power, the way, what we think about is really powerful, friends. He says, when I think about this thing, then I have hope. He says this, yet I call to mind and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. The word here for consumed means, as you would guess, to be spent, to run out, to be destroyed completely, to run out completely, like their city had been completely destroyed, or like a candle who runs out of oil, or like a jar that's left empty, or a feast that runs out of food, spent, consumed. They are sitting in a city consumed by war, and their hope is that even though everything else in life might be consumed around them, they will not be consumed. When all feels like it's running out, we will not be consumed. We will not run out. It's as if Lamentations is trying to remind us or point out that, friends, we are the candle. We are the jar of oil. We are the bread and fishes. And God can take whatever you have left no matter how small, no matter how long you think you can last, God can take it and carry you through the night. We will not be consumed. Even if everything else falls apart around us, we won't run out. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. How many times in 2020 did you say to yourself, I can't keep doing this. I've run out. When have you felt your jar go empty? I've felt it many times for different reasons. Some are, some are listening today and they're struggling in their marriage. And, and you don't think you can make it another day. Others are beginning the healing process of going through a divorce, and you just feel like after all of that, there's just nothing left. You don't got anything left. You're like, you're, you're like a candle that's meant to last a day, expected to go eight. 
Others are looking for a job, hoping that you can figure out your bills between now and when you find one, and how, how can you even find one in today's world? Others are looking for a job because the one you've got is driving you crazy because you're like, I don't think I can do this another day. Some are struggling to be parents and homeschool teachers and spouses all at the same time, stuck at home. And there are days when you're like, I've already run out. My candle's gone. Others are stuck at home alone. Again. By yourself. And you're tired of it. And you just don't want to do it anymore. You're pressed. You're perplexed. And you feel struck down. And honestly, there's not a lot I can say to your current situation to make it better. Life is hard, and sometimes things fall apart. And I don't, I don't have a lot to say about that. Life, I, no, matter, no matter what I say, it won't make life any easier for you when you're going through a hard time. Today might just be hard. Sometimes life is lived at night, and it happens. But here's what I would challenge you. Here's what gets us to the morning when things begin to change and light begins to break. What if you dared to believe that God had good things for you in your future? I think it's our tendency to assume that whatever we're currently experiencing is what we're going to always experience. Hope breaks that lie down. Hope says, no, 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 no. What I'm currently experiencing has no say on what I could experience. What I'm currently experiencing has no say in what God could do in the future. So what if you were courageous and dared to believe that there were good things in the future, that, that your future could be different, that, that, that today is not a model for tomorrow as if today gets to decide what it looks like, that this is but night and morning is coming. What if you dared to believe that? If we did then we'd be a long way toward becoming people of hope. The story of Christmas, like Hanukkah, is is about light shining. In John 1, it makes it clear that Jesus came into the world like light shining in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't overcome it, couldn't understand it. Darkness can't understand light when it breaks through. And while we wait for that, that morning where God makes all things new, We can trust that Jesus is here and that Jesus' light shines in the darkness and that even the smallest light, the smallest glimmer of hope that things could change is what can get us through the night. So it's appropriate, I think, every year for us to light a candle. And today we light a candle representing hope to remind ourselves that no amount of darkness can overcome light. That though we find ourselves in the darkness at times, and though we find ourselves struggling, that when the night comes, God can, uh, we can look to the hills and we can see God's light breaking through in the morning. Friends, I invite you today to become people of light who are willing to believe that God is not done with us yet. Let's pray. Lord, help us to look to your light. Help us to trust that when life feels dark, it's not dark to you. You have not abandoned us, for there is nowhere we can go to escape your presence. In your Son's holy name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.